Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jeff Myers is president of Summit Ministries based in Colorado, and he has a new book out entitled Truth Changes Everything, How People of Faith Can Transform the World in Times of Crisis, our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Myers. Well, it's great to be with you, Mark. I've been really looking forward to this. Loved your book, Dumbest Generation. That helped us a lot at Summit, too, by the way. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, now, now, uh, you begin by saying, uh, making an interesting Correction, really. You say that the primary battle today, and it's so easily to think this way, is not between believers and atheists, conservatives and liberals, or Democrats and Republicans, but most fundamentally between those who believe in a knowable, objective truth and those who don't. Clarify, please. Okay. Well, 75% of millennials in a recent survey said that the what works best for you, for your life, is the only truth you can know. So we've actually seen a shift now away from the idea that truth is objectively knowable, that it's somewhere out there and we can find it, even if it's difficult, to the postmodern idea that truth is essentially a social construction. So when we use words, the words are about words. The words bear no relationship to anything that actually exists, which means that what we say is what is true. That's why people now have stopped saying, seek the truth, and started saying, speak your truth. The, the, you know, what is, Dr. Mars, what is so obnoxious? What is so irritating? I mean, I guess for us, it's irritating, but not for them. It's, uh, you know, that's often spoken with, you know, an affect of approval right, of affirmation. It's really not about truth. It's about you, right? That, that's what they're really affirming, isn't it? It does seem to be that way, yes. Well, there are some people who say things like, yeah, speak your truth, man. You know, what they really mean is give your opinion and put some oomph behind it, you know, stand for what you think. But, but, but that's not actually what's going on. You have had your time in academia, and I've had my time as well in that situation. And you realize, no, this is actually a philosophical change that's taken place. It's, it, it's, it's people who became discouraged that when, when folks say things like, we're going to seek the truth, they always end up hurting people. You know, you have the Hitlers. Huh. You have right. the, the communists. And so they said, well, look, the, the, the way around that is just to not say 
that the truth is knowable, then everything will be fine. But it isn't fine. What ends up happening in society is that people get lost and confused. I'm here in Colorado, right next to Pike National Forest. It's right outside my window. If you were to travel out there and go a distance from the trails, you could find your way back if you had a compass and a topographical map, but not if you used the compass to make sure the red needle is always pointing toward you. You would be more lost, not less lost. Hmm. You know, you would think that, well, you're, you're, you're right because, okay, the truth, uh, those who claim the truth, oh, they, they can be destructive forces. Certainly they can become fanatics and, and so on, but to go then without truth, yeah. How many people are, they're kind of floundering through life, they're rootless, they have no foundations, they don't have God, they don't have worship, they don't have prayer, they don't have country in, 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 in case, they don't have family. What, why, don't they, why don't they turn to the right truth, right? Isn't, isn't that, well, well maybe, maybe they are turning to what they think is the right truth with their commitment to what, justice or, or, or you know, climate. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, are, are these false <laughs> turns toward, toward a truth, though? They're not relativists. They are really rigid, aren't they? Well, people can be very rigid when they start with the assumption that they are the center of reality. If you question that, then you're in trouble. Uh, anyone who's come up against a person who's a narcissist knows that very clearly. But the, I think maybe a bigger issue behind it is that there's no standard by which to judge what is important if there's no such thing as truth. So if there's no such thing as truth, then words bear no relationship to anything objectively real. If that is the case, then what is justice? Going back to the, the example of why postmodernists moved this direction in the first place, because they saw tyranny, uh, how would you judge what is tyrannical and what is not. Uh, when I ask students questions like, do you think that Adolf Hitler was wrong? They say yes. But then I ask them, why do you think he was wrong? And their answer is because he lost. And the winners get to decide what is right. I don't see how that's a sustainable basis for personal ethics any more than for societal ethics. Yeah, yeah. You know, you. I'm, I'm gonna ask a, a side question. You know, you're, you're there in Colorado. My mother grew up in Colorado. She was born in Leadville. And, you know, something about living in a place of great sublimity, like like Pikes Peak and 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 all the 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 mountains. That that's a nice way to say really no look at this vast expanse. Look at the horizon here. You know, uh, 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 it's all just, you know, whatever you think. There's nothing objective out here. I mean, do, do you find that, you know, the grand works of creation, of God's creation, that's almost one answer to this kind of, hey, whatever you think, man. <laughs> it's not only that people, that the mountains are beautiful, it's that we know they're beautiful. There are actually two things happening here. And now the little town where our ministry is located, Summit Ministries, the ministry I have the privilege of leading, is in, it's Manitou Springs. It's a little hippie town right at the foot of Pikes Peak. 
tourists come here by the tens of thousands. And they all say, wow, look at that. That's beautiful. Everybody has a consensus about that. But I don't think coherence is the goal for most people in their worldview. So they will say, yeah, the mountains are beautiful because I like them. Mm-hmm. And then and then you realize, well, everybody's saying the same thing. Is it possible that we're all noticing something and having a similar reaction, that our perceptions are guided by what actually exists rather than our perceptions being guided by our perceptions? So I, I just I wonder if people sort of miss this because they they are so determined, especially Americans, that I am an individual. Uh, my view get my view matters. I have freedom. They're so determined to make that the basis of their worldview that they they actually stop seeking truth. Our founders worried about this. They were quite concerned about it, which is why they put together a constitution and said the other things that they said. Yeah. Let's turn to the book proper. You begin with Father Verbiest. Who was he and what happened to him? Well, he was an astronomer and a a Jesuit missionary who went to China. And it turns out that in in China at that time, calendar keeping was a very important thing. You you guided everything by that. When you planted your crops, when you got married, when you built a house, all of those kinds of things. So to have an inaccurate calendar was not only a social disaster, it was actually traitorous to give the emperor a, uh, a calendar that had errors in it. Well, hmm. Father Verbriest went at the very time when he was able to say, With the instruments that we have, based on a belief in God, based on a recognition that the world is ordered because there was someone who ordered it, it is recognizable by us because there's someone who made it recognizable, we can use these instruments and our calculations to create a very accurate calendar. So the emperors became fascinated with this. There was a change in emperor that one of the emperors tragically died. His young son came into place. And by the time that boy was 14 years of age, uh, he had actually accepted the Catholic missionaries as emissaries, not only of the church, but of, of the state, because he said, there's something really significant about the work that they are doing to help us create an accurate calendar. And it opened up the opportunity for them to set up missions and have a tremendous impact. I guess the thing I found most compelling about that story, Mark, is asking the question, what, is, what does astronomy have to do with Christianity? Because that, that eludes most people. It doesn't seem like there's any relationship. But the early founders of science recognized, because they were largely Jesus followers who believed that Jesus is the truth, that science is really important. It's actually a form of worship. And Nicholas Copernicus actually said that when you're doing science, you're actually engaged in worship. And I've asked people for a raise mm. of hands. How many of you have ever taken a science class? All the hands go up. And I, ask, I say, I'm not asking if you passed the class, just asking if you took it, that every hand in the room is up. And I asked them, did it ever occur to you that when you were in science class that you were involved in worship? Hmm. Now, hmm. The early scientists were involved in the worship of the one true God. A lot of people today are still involved in worship in science class, but more from a secular worldview, a Marxist worldview, postmodern worldview, or what have you. But everything is worship. Everyone has a worldview. All worldviews are religious. 
And I've come to believe that very strongly and share that with the students that we have the opportunity to train here. Oh, yeah. Kepler and Newton, extremely devout uh, human beings. And they, Your history, though. And your history. Go ahead. Go you know, ahead. They weren't the exception. I think that's important to point yeah. out. Rodney Stark actually looked at the 52 scientists whose inventions and discoveries constitute what we call modern science. Only one of them was an atheist. You would never hear that if you were listening in most hmm. science classes. If your source was Richard Dawkins, you would never arrive at that realization. In fact, John Lennox, who's a retired professor of mathematics at Oxford University, said two-thirds of the people who have ever won the Nobel Prize in science listed Christian as their affiliation. There are certain things about the scientific enterprise that are not possible if objective truth doesn't exist, and there's not some way that we can know it because we were made to be knowers. Hmm. Your history, though, goes back a little farther to the year 1346. Why that year? Well, Mark, a lot of people I talk to say the times of crisis that we are in right now are the worst that that we've ever had in the history of humanity. And so part of my goal in writing the book was, no, let's go back and look at times when things were a whole lot worse. The mid-1300s was a major outbreak of the plague, the Black Death. And a third to half of the people in Europe died. We don't know how many people died in other parts of the world because we don't have good written records for it. But we know in Europe, a third to a half of the people died. A gruesome, extraordinarily painful death. If there was ever a time in history, Mark, where you would think people would say, hey, uh, God has clearly abandoned us. We're going to abandon him. That would have been it. But strangely, that's not what happened. Rather, people grew closer to God. They said, Jesus Mm. is not unaware of our suffering. He is right here suffering with us. And I I tested this out because I I thought, can that really be true? I mean, look at the art. So I asked an art guide as we were going through several different museums in Florence, can you point out to me the ones that were painted before the Black Death and the ones that were painted after the Black Death? And he said, Oh, he said, there is a dramatic difference, a huge difference. All The art completely changed. Really, why is that? And he said, it just seemed like they started to believe what they believed with a depth of intensity that hmm. had been unexperienced before. Well, the same thing happened in economics. Economic growth began to develop. The drive toward private property developed out of that time. The, the drive toward medical care, Catherine of Siena, a lot of people look at her as a patron saint, and, and she, her, her perspective was, I'm not running away from the plague victims, I'm running toward them. And she was asked, why? You have the means to get out, why are you staying? And she said, well, Jesus is with those who are suffering, and I want to be with Jesus. It was as simple as that. And out of that came all of our systems of medical care that we have today. Hmm. I think Stark, in, in, in previous works and others, attributed a part of the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire to people getting sick, and while everyone else in Rome, the pagans, would you know, take them and uh, hustle them out, outside of town and say, get the hell out of here, or avoid them, the Christians would come in and, and anoint them, right? Care for them, and yeah. some of those Christians died. Many of them Uh, did. Yeah, the death rate among the clergy was significantly higher than that of the rest of the population. During the Black Plague? During the Black Plague, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, right there, the example 
must have shown people, my goodness, this, this faith, this devotion. How much better is that than, uh, than the opposite, right? Uh, turning away, shunning the, the sick, shunning your own loved ones. Uh, my, my goodness. Um, it's you, it's you, really incredible. That, you know, and I guess that was where I wanted to go with this, this particular book, to turn the topic uh, back to that. Uh, uh, but it, you, you think about, uh, you can make all the arguments for truth. You know, here are all the arguments for objective truth. Here are refutations of all the arguments that people use to support relativism. But it seemed to me it would come to life a lot more if we could just look back and ask, what kind of society would emerge if people who were Jesus followers believed that Jesus is the truth? And it turns out that in, in medicine, as we've been talking about, in economics, in, in uh, even the idea of the value of human life, the soul, all of those things. We live in a world that was shaped by people who believe that Jesus is the truth. Yeah. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You speak of today this spreading, quote, no judgment allowed really as a mindset. Uh, it's, it's almost lived nearly unconsciously, uh, reflexively by, by people, especially young people today. Now, that no judgment wouldn't actually be possible if we hadn't lost objective truth, would it? Well, that, the, the way we approach judgment today from an individual, I am my own truth kind of perspective uh, does change. Now, there are some people who are cynical about it. They kind of take from the sophists from ancient Greece and say, hey, truth is whatever helps you win. So we're going to call anybody we don't like judgmental so that folks won't like them, and then they'll support our agenda instead. Um, so I'm assuming that what you're talking about, though, are the people who are, are genuinely pluralist. They're wanting to say, they're wanting everybody to just get along. Okay, and if, it, if we're using judgments against one another, then we can't get along as well. We can't have a good society. The problem is, of course, if you, we can't make judgments about things, what is it that we can actually know? In, in science, if I make a judgment that water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at sea level, it wouldn't be appropriate for someone to say, well, you know what, you should really keep that opinion to yourself because that, you know, that might be divisive. Or if I said Martin Luther King uh, was killed on April 4th, 1968, it wouldn't be appropriate for someone to say, you know, maybe that depends on your culture, because in other cultures, they might not see it that way. No, scientific facts and historical facts are what they are. The question is, do moral facts actually exist? And that's a lot of fun when we work with this rising generation. I'll give them examples. You know, is it is it better to care for abandoned puppies or to torture abandoned puppies. And everyone has a view on that. No one says it's better to torture them. But everybody assumes that they know what is meant by the words care and torture, which means that we do believe 
at the core, even if we don't want to be judgmental people, that there are actual differences in what these words refer to. Isn't it odd that while science and technology have progressed, while knowledge grows every week, it seems that skepticism about the truth seems to be spreading? It's kind of strange, isn't it? I, I wonder where the skepticism uh, comes from. Some of it is is from the politiz- politicization of science, as an example, you know, where people will say, follow the science, when clearly what they're doing is promoting a political agenda, and then cherry-picking from scientific insights in order to support that agenda. So people do get tired of that, and I understand that. That, 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 act, act, that kind of skepticism actually makes sense to me. Uh, but the idea that we should therefore be skeptical of all truth claims simply doesn't wash. And it's, it's Christians who, through time, have d- done something that other philosophical systems, and, and I don't mean to s- diminish the religious aspect of Christianity, but it is a philosophical system as well. The other philosophical systems said, oh, the Logos, that exists. You know, reality, there, there's an obviousness to reality. But when you look at John chapter 1, for example, John says, in the beginning was the Logos of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And, and you realize, oh, the Logos isn't just a concept. It's not just an abstraction. It's a person. It is embodied. It is incarnated. And I believe that was the transition point in history. And still, I believe, is the transition point even in the society in which we live. It's the answer to hopelessness and skepticism. Now, for for Christians, of course, there is an infallible source and guide source of and guide to the truth. We have the Gospels. Uh, what does it mean to assert, as, as you said earlier, what does it mean specifically to say, and this, this gets to your work with Summit Ministries, I think, that Jesus is the truth. Not that Jesus speaks the truth, but Jesus is the truth. Explain that for us. Well, that, that claim is to say that your feelings about Jesus— are only part of the picture. It is that your understanding that Jesus is the truth not only helps you feel differently about the world, it helps you see everything in the world differently. John 8, 32 is a good example. Jesus said, if you follow my teachings, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, the Greek word he's using there in the original language to which the, the, the Gospels were given to us, the Koine Greek, that word is aletheia, it, it means reality. So Jesus isn't just saying, if you follow me, you'll know your truth. He's saying, if you follow me, you will know reality. Uh, and that's a scary thing for a lot of people. To be honest, 75% of the students I work with say they don't have a sense of purpose that gives meaning to their lives. Reality has not been kind. It is, it is much easier to say, I'm going to construct my own reality that favors my own experience and protects me. But what Jesus is saying is, no, it's, it's best to know actual reality. And, and when you know actual reality, then you can be set free from all of these things. And that's the psychiatric experience. You know, psychiatrists will tell you if, you, if you're struggling with an addiction or a mental illness, the very first thing you've got to do is to grapple with reality as it actually is. 
You, you don't say to a person who's suffering from anorexia, yeah, I know when you look in the mirror, you seem fat and you probably could stand to lose a few pounds. No, that would be incredibly cruel to, to say that. We, that person, we want to walk alongside of them so they can acknowledge reality as it actually is so they can get well. And I think what's true at a personal level is also true at a relational level and also true at a societal level. You know, when, when, when these relativists or, or, or postmodernists or my, my truth, are there, uh, Dr. Myers, are they able to pray? And if they can pray, to what do they pray? To whom or what do they address their prayers? I mean, I, I hadn't, that, that's, a, that's a question that just comes up out yeah. of what you, what you said a, a minute ago. It's not specifically in the book, but uh, t- tell me. What is the object of their prayer? I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, There are all kinds of people who pray who don't even believe in God. When my wife Stephanie and I go to restaurants or whatever, we ask people, hey, would you like to have a blessing? Can we we pray for you? No one ever says no. Uh, But but when they Hmm. think about prayer, often they're thinking about adjusting their own mental attitude. Uh, they're they're thinking, okay, I'm going to adjust my approach to life. I'm going to be more thoughtful about my life. I want to be more sensitive to other people around me because I think that's a good thing. When you go back to the way C.S. Lewis talked about prayer, it's very different. That prayer is orienting yourself to God. You're you're not saying, uh, God, help me be centered, and in myself, you're asking God, help me see what you see. Help me hear what you hear. Help me go where you are going. Uh, I guess that's—I mean, I, I, I guess that's a good thing and in, 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 in a simple moral sense. I'll be more thoughtful. I, I'll be, but I, I would say that that actually is, is, is a sign of, of God working through them, whether they realize it or not. I hope so. Yes, <laughs> I, I think so. Well, certainly, you know, what we Protestants call general revelation— uh, is available. There's there's a there's a common grace that that's part of all of our lives. People do want to tap into something that is transcendent, but I I, I sometimes wonder that it's just it's extremely difficult for them to do it because they don't want to feel that they're judging others. They don't want to give offense. Uh, being nice seems to have been elevated to such a high level as a societal goal that we've even forgotten what gentleness and kindness would actually look like. Right. And I want to highlight that in the book, you actually have practical advice on this. In the latter part of the book, I'm jumping ahead in in our last few minutes, you have a section called, quote, how to tell the truth and be nice at the same time. (laughs) Do do you want to lay out some of that advice for us? Yeah, I've gotten some pushback on that because I've had people say, well, you know, niceness is not a biblical virtue, don't you? I say, well, yeah, gentleness and kindness, those are the biblical virtues. But I, I'm saying it a little bit tongue-in-cheek. People sometimes, in order right. to want to be nice, say that they won't speak the truth. And it, it turns out, in fact, about half the people who actually do have pretty solid values in this country never say anything because they don't want to give offense or they don't know what to say. So my goal is to teach how to engage in conversation. If your professors are shutting down the conversation for politically correct reasons, you can open it up just with questions. Questions like, tell me more about that. 
What do you mean when you use that term? How did you arrive at that conclusion? I'm curious about your story. Those kinds of things allow us to push in, press in, to engage when maybe our impulse would be to try to escape. So I give a whole bunch of different things, even including how do you, what do you do if you're in a situation where the other person is hostile? Yeah. I work with a lot of young adults, several thousand of them every year. They come, they get trained for two weeks at a time here at Summit Ministries, and we bring in front of them major Christian thought leaders who are smarter and more well-versed on the issues than their professors will be, so they can be confident that a biblical worldview is true. But a lot of them come in with a great deal of anger. They're hostile when, when they get here. And, hmm. and a lot of it is just disarming the hostility by asking, hey, tell me, that seems very upsetting to you. You know, have there been some things that happened in your life that, that caused you to be the way you are? And I'm not yeah. trying to be a psychologist. I, I'm just yeah. trying to engage, to, to move in, to walk alongside. Why can't we see ourselves, instead of butting heads like this, being side by side, walking toward the truth? Do, do you talk to them? about things that have happened in your life, just so they're aware that, look, you know, struggles, I'm not above the struggles. I've, I've you know, fallen here and there. I've had bad things. Does that, does that help? That, it, that really, it really does help. And in my personal experience, I share stories from my, my own life. You know, one of the things that I share with the students who are here is that when I was in college, I got my girlfriend pregnant and we pursued an abortion. And I deal with the consequences of that. I believe God has forgiven me, but I still live with the consequences of that decision. And I share about that. And I share, you know what? If I'd been a real man, I would have stood up for that relationship. I would have said, you know, two two wrongs don't make a right. I would have protected that beautiful young woman. But I didn't. And my regret over that is one of the things I share. Well, I, I can tell you, Mark, it's unbelievable. The students who will, as soon as I share that, come up and say, I struggle with pornography. I can't get out of it. I'm scared to death and I don't know what to do. Or uh, I'm struggling with anger toward my family. Or I was abused. All sorts of things begin to come up. And then healing becomes possible. You know, I I think that it's important for people to remember about St. Paul. Paul lives with the knowledge that he, he helped to stone Stephen. That doesn't go away. He remembers that. He carries that memory with him. Even though he feels forgiven, he doesn't forget. Uh, And and I think that that side of things, look, just if if you've done bad things, that, that that doesn't prevent you from doing better things. And it doesn't discount your capacity to do, to do better things. Uh, Yeah. So... Yeah, the, 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 the confession. You have another word, piece of advice. Be comfortable with silence. Why is that important? <laughs> well, we live in a world where the virtue of silence occurs to almost no one. We don't, we don't want to have any spare moments. I was the other day traveling, and I had an opportunity to go for a run, and I, I ran by a class. They were gathered to sketch. Uh, by a a very beautiful spot and they had all their sketchbooks out and the teacher was working on something none of the students were sketching they were all scrolling through their social media 
every single one of them, 100% of them uh. on their on their phones. And I, I know that because I actually stopped and looked because I thought, is that really true? Here they are in this beautiful setting. They've got all these, I mean, sailboats and birds and a beautiful shoreline, all these things they could be sketching. And they're scrolling through social media. It, I know. It, it is... It, so, so silence, Christians love to make a noise, make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? That's a, that's a part of Christian tradition. But when you walk into a great cathedral, your first impulse, I don't think for most people is to start making noise. Your first impulse is to be quiet because you recognize that you're in the presence of something big and silence, especially when someone is experiencing pain to just sit there with them. You don't have to say anything at all. Just be a witness to their pain. And yeah. it's so much, It just letting the silence flow for a few minutes or letting there be a pause in the conversation, all of that establishes a flow that I think goes back to the whole idea of Shabbat that God gave us in, in Scripture. There's much more. In, in the book, but for now, the title is Truth Changes Everything, How People of Faith Can Transform the World in Times of Crisis. Dr. Myers, thank you for joining us. So great to be with you. Love your show and love first things. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.